Hello and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast where we explore compelling themes and some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Chris. I'm Brittany. And this week we'll be exploring the theme of gender in The Hunger Games and The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Yeah. So we should probably lay the groundwork of who we are and, and the perspectives that we're coming into this discussion from. I am a cisgendered straight man, so I am definitely coming at this from a limited perspective. What about you? He asks as if he doesn't already know. <laughs> <laughs> so I am a, a queer woman. So usually use she, her, they, them. Yeah, and I use he, his. To start off our analysis, we wanted to discuss a quote from The Hunger Games. This quote comes from the first book, and it is during the interviews uh, with Caesar Flickerman, and Katniss is describing one of the other girls who's being interviewed. The girl tribute from District 1, looking provocative in a see-through gold gown, steps up to the center of the stage to join Caesar for her interview. You can tell her mentor didn't have any trouble coming up with an angle for her. With that flowing blonde hair, emerald green eyes, her body tall and lush, she's sexy all the way. So this is Glimmer, right? Yeah. So yeah, we, we I, I think it's interesting, you know, using her as an example of, of an angle. Earlier, Katniss was talking with Hamish about what her angle would be for the interviews. And, you know, sexiness is in this kind of realm very much an angle in the same way that anyone who walks down a red carpet is coming in with a intentional design behind, you know, what they are wearing and why they're wearing it. It's a little higher stakes with the Hunger Games. <laughs> But it's very clear that this is probably a common angle that's being used for these girls who are participating. Absolutely. And it's it's a little bizarre in a way because once they hit the ground running in the arena, like a lot of the different angles might fall away to some degree mm. because now you're just seeing them like killing each other. I mean, Chloe's not disturbing for the capital citizens to watch so maybe they can hold all of these like w the image of this person intact while watching these things happen but mm -hmm. to somebody who would be horrified watching these things it just it feels like it would be such a kind of disorienting strange experience yeah and a little before like as chris mentioned katniss is talking with Hamish about yeah, what angle they're going to go for with her. You know, he was saying, should it be charming, aloof, fierce? And he's just like, all you've given off is basically being sullen and hostile. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I love that differentiation between fierce and hostile. Mm. And I, I think where this applies to gender very specifically is yeah in the media in society in the world you can you can watch something about a woman who's fierce and like okay a fair amount of people can get behind this character but yeah if a woman is hostile if she's sullen and she's these things like those aren't things that society gets behind a woman being that's not acceptable in society to be that way and nobody would ever want to sponsor you you know nobody's going to be behind you if if you appear this way yeah absolutely 
I do wonder, since we don't really get to see his conversation with PETA about it, so for PETA, they were going with likable. Which you can't imagine that being a woman's, like, number mm -hmm. one characteristic that you get from, oh, she's likable. Like, that would be... Shouldn't they always be likable? Exactly, right? <laughs> likable in what way? In what way yeah. are we commodifying her? Are we, are we yeah. objectifying her? Are we, you know, boiling her down to a digestible yeah. essence? Of course, she's always going to be smiling. Like, of course, yeah. Of course, yeah. she has to be. <laughs> you know? Yeah, so I think it, it would be very interesting to see that conversation with PETA or with any other mm-hmm. of the boys who are in the games. Like, what are the different categories that they go to as the angles that we're going to market you to the public through? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. One last thing I I did want to mention is I do think it's important that they use the word girls uh, Mm -hmm. or the the girl from District 1 to describe Glimmer because it's another reminder that even as this person is being sexualized, they're wearing a see-through gown. And we know that at times people are naked so who knows if she's wearing anything underneath but either way she is a child and Mm -hmm. all of them are children who are being put into these awful awful circumstances and who are not only meant to kill each other but then have to be sexualized and objectified and, and commodified in these other ways that are even more dehumanizing so i appreciate this quote for also making those things clear Absolutely. And these are things that are thrust upon many people, but women in particular in society. Yeah. But why don't we get into our analysis proper? What character did you bring to talk about gender in The Hunger Games? I was like thinking about different options, but I was just like, no, I I have to go with Katniss. Not only do we get the most from her, but Mm -hmm. I think she's just, she is such a great female character Mm. to talk about gender because... Her character, I think, really um, is so complex, and it's a complexity that I think we rarely see in female characters, and there's a lot of ways in which her character kind of flips different stereotypes on their head or subverts things, which I really appreciate. And so so there's the kind of more obvious, oh, she's a hunter. Mm. Like, I thought she was supposed to be the gatherer, you know? (laughs) (laughs) But also it's like she doesn't want to have kids. And then she's not, quote unquote, attractive, right? Mm. And none of these are things that are commonly a part of female characters that are represented throughout most of media. But yeah, I think it's a, they're a little more obvious and, and on the surface there. But then I think there's some less obvious things that are also not so often attributed to female characters, like being incredibly strategic. Mm. It's ridiculous. I mean, all, all of these things are ridiculous because yes, but yeah, I think... So often we see the male strategist, and it's it's so rarely seen for a female character, but she's really strategic, because we're in her head. It's, it's great. We get to see her thoughts of, after Rue dies, I cannot cry at this, because that will be seen as weak to mm. the, the sponsors. For me to continue to get gifts and things like that, I have to present this certain image, and then she figures out the booby-trapped food Mm -hmm. from the careers and and how to set off those minds and things like that. Yeah, she's very strategic, and I I really love that about her. 
I think she's also more dominant in her relationships. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And she also isn't always catering to the greatest good, which I think is a common trait you see in female characters that they sacrifice or even if it's not like some dramatic sacrifice, but they're like lessening themselves or they're, yeah, catering to other people around them. But at the end of the day, she goes to try to hunt down snow on her own uh, because that's what she wanted to do. And that was not at all for the greatest good. Yeah, she she is such a, I think, a icon in how she is not the overly emotional female character, which mm-hmm. is, is so common. She is very cerebral um, to the extent that she's not in touch with her emotions in unhealthy ways at times. Yet I still see her being a really fascinating character, particularly a point of view character, because she is, yeah, she, she has that, that strategy that you're talking about. And when we see her in the Hunger Games, we're not reading it for the action scenes to see people fighting and killing each other because that's awful. <laughs> and yes her so her her perspective is all about survival what does she need to do to stay off people's radar to have the the tools and food that she needs to survive um how will her engagements with other people be good or, or difficult for her all those things i think are really interesting because it is more of the kinds of things that you hear in, in like a survival genre type of book than it is a you know, what you might think of in regards to, you know, children battleground, battle royale type style of, of genre. And yeah, I just, I think that it's also telling and interesting that the, the book, yeah, her, her ultimate decision is to be an assassin. <laughs> um, first to yeah. Snow and then to Coin. Mm-hmm. And that she makes the most narrative difference in killing Coin because, yeah, she does something that is you know i'm obviously a comic book reader and so like that's like when you think about the comic book characters that exist out there the assassins who are going to kill someone and someone's life are almost always these male characters it's very rare to be a female character who is still a complex uh human being and and she's i think a really good example of someone who subverts that trope i think i see it more often nowadays because in part katniss was such a great example of it Mm. yeah yeah and and in talking about her being complex, I think Suzanne Collins just does such a good job at writing her in a way that, like, doesn't put her in any boxes. Mm. So, for example, she's very tough, but she also cries. Mm. She's brave, and she wake, wakes up screaming from nightmares. She's powerful and significantly debilitated from trauma symptoms. Yeah. She kills and she has compassion. She's a hunter and she sings. She is... A loving sister. Mm-hmm. And hates all people. <laughs> <laughs> she has, like, strong opinions and judgments mm-hmm. and also doesn't always know what she's feeling or why. Yeah. And she doesn't want to wear dresses. And she also has long hair that's braided, you Mm -hmm. know. And so I think there's all of these ways where she's 
both and mm-hmm. and i think that it just yeah it rounds her out so well it's just so inspiring because it's so rare that we get to see that in a female character they're they're so often like the quote we were talking about there's a certain angle that is played up for that character that's the box they're in and they operate there but Katniss just she has so many more complexities just like humans do Mm. that it's not either or it doesn't have to be that way and I think it's just a wonderful beautiful example of of how personality traits and and or even ideas of personality traits don't have to be mutually exclusive and how she is a strong female character not because she can kill and fight and not cry it's because she's a strong character and it doesn't matter that sometimes she breaks down and cries it doesn't matter that you know she she is strong in not the absence of things that are stereotypically said to be female it's just no she is all of these things and um to me she is in so many ways what we should be looking towards for when female characters are written like this should be closer to our goal of how complex women and and girls in in media need to be written absolutely yeah but why don't we move into your plot point so when i was thinking about what i want to talk about for my plot you know i was also struck by how katniss and Peeta, i think in in particular do subvert a lot of typical gender roles and expectations but when I was thinking about the wider world of Panem, I, I realized the world is still largely ruled by men. Men are still the majority of the people who are in power. You look at Snow at the top, obviously. Um, I love that you say Snow at the top. I'm sure he would love that. Oh, yeah. It always lands on top. <laughs> <laughs> but even Heavens Be and, you know, these head games masters. The mayor and head peacekeepers in District 12 are male, and it doesn't seem like this. Is, these are positions that are not open to women officially, but I imagine that on the ground that is, is the case, and that's largely due to these more insidious forms of patriarchy and gendered expectations of who should have power and, and who shouldn't. And I think that uh, before coin the only kind of leader that we see is one that's not a formal leader. It's Greasy Say, who is mm. in the hob and is clearly kind of one of the ones who is leading this community black market, essentially. And that is its own job, being a social leader, being a, a leader of a community. And in our world, those are also the kinds of positions that tend to have women in them more than other leadership positions Mm. um but then we also see the other i think interesting female leader that we see in the the, uh, original series is coin because she is the leader of district 13 this this you know not only uh, a community but a government and a a seat of power and i think it's it's particularly fascinating seeing coin as the leader of this because uh one of the things i was thinking about was how the head peacekeepers in particular and and snow you know this is a 
militarized kind of organization, particularly when you look at their relationship with the districts. The capital is a military dictatorship in many ways. And if you're talking about the military, we don't see a lot of female peacekeepers at all. And militaries historically have typically had men making up the vast majority of them or people who are uh, presenting as men or masculine. Yet District 13 is more culturally military than the capital is. It has <laughs> yeah. these, you know, people have assigned bunks and assigned time where they have to be doing certain tasks. You are rationed your food. You, everyone's wearing the same outfits. Everything's tied in with their nuclear program. They have these drills. And, and a lot of that, I think, is because of their circumstances. But the fact that Coin is the leader of it, I think, plays an interesting narrative role because she almost seems to be, at least at first, represented as the other side of the coin to Snow. Um, she is kind of his opposite. But then you see by the end that she is just another version of him. Yeah. That it's not her gender that makes her different from him. It is her circumstance. And that they can both be conniving, manipulative, power-hungry leaders who just happen to have different resources at their disposal and are thus going to use those in different ways. And just because one of them happens to be in favor of less horrible policies <laughs> for the world does not mean that they are themselves admirable. Yeah, I just I think this is a good example of, uh, you know, this is obviously me projecting a lot, but when I think about Susan Collins as an, a female writer, these are decisions that she's making in a different way than I would as a male writer or that I do as a male reader where it took me a second where I was like, oh, that's right. There are mostly male leaders because that's not something that I uh, naturally picked up on the first few times I read because unfortunately it's naturalized and socialized. Well, I mean, it wouldn't make sense to have such a horrible system that was maintained by all female leaders. That, just, <laughs> that would seem too unbelievable, Chris. So yeah, I just, I think it's an interesting dynamic, but I appreciate that, you know, talking about the complexity that you brought up with Katniss's character, it doesn't just go into the trope of, and now we have this more communal and considerate uh, female-led District 13, <laughs> and they're going to come in and they're the, the the good people, you know, it's, it's much more uh, complex than that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting because then we also see... Uh, briefly, we don't we don't spend much time with her, but Lime, the district mm. two victors who's helping on the rebellion side, also military position. Mm -hmm. And one that she got similar to Katniss through participation in the Hunger Games, mm -hmm. which gets mm -hmm. a lot of notoriety and acclaim and respect, you know, through a pretty messed up system. Yeah, definitely. And then you also, you have Paler, mm. who... I'm not clearly remembering what her exact title was. I know she had a gun, <laughs> mm -hmm. and and she was definitely the leader, but she was, yeah, I think leading in a in, in a different way than than those other those other three were. Yeah, so this could probably be its own missed opportunity, but <laughs> this, you know what what's going on? Are there these kind of gendered roles within the peacekeepers and these other institutions, um, and how they're mm -hmm. formalized, and and what the expectations are, or the opportunities are for women who want to take those paths? What military men don't really want to just promote women? <laughs> 
clearly uh, the American military system um, incorporation of the, the other genders has yeah, yeah been flawless. Yeah. No yeah. problems at all. No problems. <laughs> well, why don't we move into our compelling questions? Well, so I was kind of thinking about this idea of how sometimes comparing and contrasting or like seeing tension between different things can reveal insights. Mm -hmm. And so I'm kind of wondering for you in comparing different characters, what ideas about gender do you see? Very interesting question. The first thing that comes to mind in this, I was thinking about this a bit while you were talking about Katniss, is comparing Katniss with Lucy Gray. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because Katniss is not a performer. Yeah. (laughs) Lucy Gray is a great performer. Yes. And so they both are kind of doing the same thing with the Hunger Games. But Katniss is doing it because it's necessary. Because, you know, it's required of her to be able to survive. Mm -hmm. Lucy Gray's doing it, you know, similarly, but more intentionally and more, you know, in some ways it's her idea. She's one of the people who brings in this concept of performance. which. I think set, starts to set up what the Hunger Games becomes by the time uh, of the 74th and 75th games. But, you know, her performative nature and her, her ease and comfort in that role, I think, was a way of her utilizing the skills that she had to position herself in a way that she would be, you know, have the most chance of success. And so when I think about the gendered implications of those performances, how women are often expected to perform all the time, and particularly when they are in public-facing roles. Yet they have to be smiling. They have to be well-dressed because they are going to be open to so many more and so much less substantial forms of criticism and critique than a man would in that role. So, yeah, I I think it's, it's interesting because in some ways Lucy Gray has a bit more agency because she's the one who is putting on this persona. She's the one who's coming off the train in this very, you know, elegant way. She's the one who's Mm -hmm. putting on the song when she's chosen, you know, well before she meets Snow. And yet, at the same time, that agency for her and for Katniss are, are clearly so constrained by the economic, social, other kind of conditions that they're put in and the gendered expectations that are put on them as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I was also thinking about them too a bit and like how they are just such different girls, like mm-hmm. just so different. And I kind of wonder if like Suzanne Collins, if she in any way like wanted to now show a very different sort of girl than Katniss was and like Katniss hates makeup and doesn't like being made up and those things and Lucy Gray is doing this when it's not even a part of the games Mm -hmm. right yet Um, she's choosing to wear a rainbow dress exactly and like when she's given the opportunity via tigress you know it's like she takes that Mm -hmm. and it's showing that both of them are smart both of them are strong and yeah they're, they're they're so vast vastly different and like as if Katniss wasn't well-rounded enough (laughs) and it's like (laughs) Suzanne Collins brought like even more diversity into how girls can be Mm -hmm. yeah 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 that's interesting I was also thinking a bit about Snow versus Sejanus 
you have a very interesting portrait of men if you if you look at these two characters because with snow you have this brutal removed strategist ambitious person right and then you have sejanus who's principled and compassionate and just like so warm and people if they're not terrible like snow just like him (laughs) yeah and And he likes people he gives people the benefit mm -hmm. of the doubt he is calls snow his brother uh (laughs) he yeah some people would say gullible yeah yeah Mm -hmm. he finds out that there's these problems with the freedom fighters in 12 and he immediately wants to help them he doesn't know these people but Mm -hmm. you know he just he's he's a helper yeah totally and yeah i think you have these much more traditionally like toxically masculine things that snow is mm-hmm. embodying and and leaning into and then you have sejanus i think being a very good uh, a counter to that you know the, yeah he can he can say something flirtatious to snow and he can not be able to handle the stress mm. and emotional devastation that it is to be him in this world and snow refuses that Mm -hmm. you know the thing that that came to mind was at the end when he talks about how he's going to marry someone he hates so that he doesn't have that kind of vulnerability he doesn't Mm -hmm. lose that kind of control yeah and he always has power in the relationship you know it's it's Obviously, in part due to the way that he was vulnerable with Lucy Gray and how that affected him. But I think it's also looking at Sejanus as what he does not want himself to be. Mm-hmm. Um, which is hilarious because we look at Sejanus and just like, oh, Sejanus! <laughs> this is what we want to be. <laughs> I mean, without the terrible backstory, but... Obviously, yes. <laughs> yeah, totally. So I was also thinking about Effie and... Caesar Flickerman and the fact that they have this nice balance where gender isn't really polarized in society you know because they're both flamboyant in in personality and dress Mm -hmm. they're both you know care about fashion wear makeup like to be in the spotlight you know smile through any bad thing that comes up (laughs) absolutely incredibly professional in what they're doing and yeah i i really appreciate that as well but it's kind of subverting some of the ways that that we think about you know gender and society totally yeah was there anyone else, any other characters or anything? Uh, well, another pair that's on my mind is uh, actually Peta and Gail. Um, but that kind of leads into my question for you, if that's all right. Mm-hmm. So the the first Hunger Games came out in 2008, and this was kind of this, this prime example of a pretty common genre that was going on at the time, which are these often young adult books that featured a female protagonist with two love interests, two male love interests. And we have that with Peta and Gail, this this love triangle between Katniss. Um, and so I would just would love to know your thoughts on the genre and how Hunger Games fixed into it. And then, yeah, how you see gender um, playing into the way that Katniss engages with the these two characters. Interesting. That's a hard one because I think Peter definitely doesn't fall into the stereotypes of masculinity, which I appreciate. 
but gender is constructed and it doesn't have to be constructed the way that most of society does. Right. So it gets tricky <laughs> because you have Gale falling into more stereotypically masculine things. He's also a hunter. He's handsome. He uh, is providing for his family and, you know, even her for hers while she's gone. More comfortable with violence. Yes, definitely more comfortable with that. And then you have someone like Peta who is... Not just a baker, but he's a painter. He he decorates the cakes. He is incredibly artistic. He processes some of his terrible experiences in the games through art. Mm. He is sensitive. He is compassionate. He is very attentive. And um, he definitely defers to Katniss <laughs> with what... Uh, with what she wants to do mm. uh, which is which is great and i think that's probably one of the reasons that it works better <laughs> between her and 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 peter than it would between katniss and gail uh because i see part of those things i mean in our relationship i'm much more the katniss and you're much more the pita absolutely uh, so it's hard to not view it through that lens as well <laughs> but it is interesting too that they've grown up watching the hunger games they've grown up seeing this gaudy display of people and so as soon as they're chosen they know that they're gonna have to be a part of this and whatnot i think in a society that didn't have a place like the capital where yes effie and, and caesar are the norm Mm -hmm. I could see not not from Katniss's character, but from some women in society that I don't understand, nor do I probably get along very well with. You know, they could see something like Peta having been in the exact same outfits that she was in, having makeup, having these different things as a negative against their interest in him, mm. you know, um, and in his quote-unquote desirability. Obviously, Katniss doesn't doesn't feel that way and, and maybe it would be slightly different in the context of Panem where this yeah. is the norm but um yeah it's, it's something kind of an interesting additional element yeah what were you thinking about yeah similarly I think that when looking through this theme you see how a lot of the ways that Gail and Peter are different are those things that can typically be associated with our concepts of traditional femininity and masculinity and mm -hmm. Particularly after our conversation about how oftentimes Katniss herself subverts traditional femininity. There's a part of me that wonders, and, and I don't feel equipped or prepared to, to make a, a firm statement either way, but wonders, would it be more subversive to not have Katniss be a character who exhibits many traditionally masculine traits end up with a character who ends up, who exerts traditionally feminine traits mm -hmm. it's subverses in that it's not a woman doing the feminine the man, mm -hmm. man doing the man the masculine but the man things the man things yeah. <laughs> but yeah i wonder you know if if we are trying to look at the world through a lens that's outside the gender binary mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. is it is there greater room for representations of characters who do not have to be on opposite sides of that that kind of spectrum. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. On the other hand, there's also an element of just Gale brought the things that Katniss already had, mm -hmm. and Peta compliments Katniss. 
I think that a a couple that complements each other often can be very strong and compelling and, and they can help build each other in ways that two that are much more similar would have a harder time doing. But then do we have to automatically assume that if you are complementary, one is going to be more masculine, one's going to be more feminine, you know? I mean, I would say absolutely not, but that would oftentimes be the assumption. Yeah. Exactly. And, 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 and I'm trying to not operate with that assumption, mm-hmm. essentially. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I brought this question up really because it's just a, a kind of thing in my mind that I am questioning. Mm-hmm. I think I'm, I'm kind of still navigating through. Obviously, I love the books, um, and I think that PETA is, you know, I'm totally team PETA, 100%. Uh, <laughs> is there another team? <laughs> I'm not aware. Team Johanna. Uh, <laughs> but yes, uh, I, I, I think that there are just some interesting questions here. Yeah, totally. And it's actually funny that you say that because then I was thinking about some of the ways that I think Peter still does fall into masculine stereotypes of like, he still is bigger and stronger. Mm -hmm. He still is like doing all of these different things to help save her, protect her, those type of things. And it's just funny. I was like, that's, that's where it's like, it's already like, there's too much of the masculine. for my taste but um when you're looking at something not through my eyes he would probably be seen much more the other way yeah Yeah. (laughs) but but on the kind of the the premise of about this kind of genre of the love triangle i think that one of the things that that i love about this version of that is that it's not a fight between gail and pita that it's always from her perspective and her navigating these two relationships. It's mm-hmm. not them fighting over her to see who will win her in any way. Yeah. It's, um, they certainly, they actually never fight, you know, okay. which in any other media, <laughs> that would be yeah. something that you would have to see. There's got to be a screen. fist yeah, fight. There's got to be a fist fight. We need an action There's not enough here. testosterone in the room. <laughs> and... What we see here instead is that the two of them try to help each other, that they mm. protect each other as well, not yeah. even because they have their own relationship, but because they both care about Katniss. And One, I think that very much makes it, she is not a prize to be won because mm-hmm. they are not fighting over her. She makes a choice when she wants to make a choice, when she's ready to make a choice. And Exactly. They just have to go along with whatever that choice is, you know. And neither of their stories is wholly about pursuing her either. Mm -hmm. They are both dealing Mm -hmm. with other concerns of survivability and what it means to live in and resist this awful system that they're in. And it's not just a quest with her that they are reaching for, but there's there's so much more to their relationships with her and to the rest of the world. I love Um, that you used the word quest. I mean play a lot of video games <laughs> yeah I, I, I am aware i'm just saying is it just seems like such an odd word to use in the context of the hunger games <laughs> nobody has time for quests <laughs> they're crushed under poverty and oppression which is yeah i mean that's really it is like I, I would use the word quest because it is such a luxury exactly mm. um and it's something that doesn't fit into i think more robust world building and interesting stories. It is something that is available for uh, something that's trying to, you know, be more romantic. And I don't Mm -hmm. mean romantic in the way of necessarily being about love, but just Mm -hmm. about these kind of grander idealistic perspectives. It has to be epic. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And those 
aren't necessarily bad. You know, yeah. I love Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. but it just, there's, I think, so much more to chew on here. And this is a really good example of how. Totally, totally. Yeah. But why don't we move on to our missed opportunities and stop complimenting this series and start... <laughs> Criticizing yeah. it. <laughs> That's what we're all here for, right? <laughs> so I kind of have two, so I'll try to go through this quickly. Do. Okay, normally we never have anything to talk about <laughs> for the missed opportunities and because she does such a good job. So I'm going to take the two. It's our podcast. I can break the rules if I want. <laughs> Okay, so, okay, three. But one's a sentence. (laughs) One is a sentence. Literally, there are no main non-hetero relationships. So, yes, that. Yep. And and main characters, at least, that are out. So, yes, that. Um, Although... I have my eye on Sejanus and Johanna, so, you know. (laughs) But, okay, moving right along to number two. (laughs) We don't get a lot of information about Finnick's sexual exploitation, Mm. but, you know, being as gorgeous as he was, I would think that there would, you know, not only be rich women who were interested in him and basically buying sexual experiences from him, but in the books, I think at least from Katniss's perspective, I don't think it's ever explicitly said, but the only comments she makes are about women in, in that regard. So yeah, I, I just, I, I want more information, you know, how it would have been decided if he is available to both men and women. Would this be allowed or prevented in the capital, you know, as as horrific as those conversations would be, and they would be horrific. There are certain things in a society that could make things seem more tolerant. Like, for example, the Caesar Flickermans, the, mm-hmm. you know, that all of these men are wearing different type of dress than we have now here in, in mainstream society. But that doesn't mean that there isn't homophobia and, and bigoted ideas underneath yeah. that all. And so it's just like, how does who he is is with slash bought from like affect his image yeah totally and and wanting to see what those conversations look like because it is emblematic of issues with the wider society exactly not because it's no not about not this not specific ha- situation yeah exactly, exactly like totally yeah. yeah okay and lastly <laughs> if you say so <laughs> It's just kind of about, I think that there are, or yeah, I'm already watering down my language. There are some cases in the books of sexual harassment and they're not ever really addressed. So one that I was thinking about is at the very beginning of the book, at the reaping, when Effie is talking and everything, Hamish is drunk. He gets confused because all these different people are applauding and he goes to like give her a big hug and she like, it says like she barely managed to fend him off or something. Mm -hmm. And so it's clearly unwanted physical contact. And coming from a drunk man. Exactly. And she just goes along doing her job incredibly professionally and that is what happens, you know, in the world every single day. So some of these cases, like, I'm not necessarily angry that they're in there because this does happen. Mm-hmm. And in a world that Suzanne Collins has made that's very nuanced and, and has so many parallels to her own 
world, it could almost be a missed opportunity to not be there at all. Um, And then we also have with people teasing Katniss about being quote unquote pure, Chaff kisses her like on the mouth. Mm Finnick is being super seductive around her. Johanna strips down and it's like, no, this is sexual harassment. And Pete is like, oh, well. They're messing with you. They're messing, like, they're just teasing you, yeah. you know? And then I think it's like the line after that is, I didn't talk to Pete the rest of the day or whatever. <laughs> Which at first I was like, oh, she's being like really, not not dramatic, but just like, uh, what is the right word? Um she's angrier about this thing than she needs to be Mm. and then i'm like um wait no absolutely not she was uncomfortable with things that people were doing around her Mm -hmm. sexual things and it's a form of gaslighting to be like oh they were just teasing you well it doesn't matter even if that was their intention it matters how she is receiving that right yeah yeah no you shouldn't talk to Peta like for the rest of the evening I understand uh, he's a kid too, so I'm, I don't hate Peter forever. But like, yeah, I think... She's, it's totally valid for her to be angry. Absolutely, yeah. And and I'm glad that she does not just kind of cave to, mm. to uh, what he's saying. Um, I, I appreciate that about her. Yeah, so it, it makes sense for some of these things to be in there, but there's not... I don't know if it's just coming from the perspective in society where we're so used to these things. Like, it's a part of everyday life as a woman. They don't seem like it's making this, like, negative moral judgment on it. Like, the same Mm. way that it does about poverty, um, policing, these other social issues that we've talked about. And so I don't know if that's, like, me being semi-desensitized to it because Mm. of living in this way. So, like, I don't automatically assume that Suzanne Collins is saying like no this is a problem you know in the way that she does where it's just observations of what's happening yeah or if it is a missed opportunity this should have been done slightly differently or more of a moral judgment should have been put on this yeah yeah that's really interesting what interesting missed opportunity do you have for me well I'm gonna add in a second one too because you (laughs) did it Maybe we just won't do takeaways. (laughs) Our takeaways have to be one to two sentences long. Sounds good. Uh, But just a very brief one is that there's no explicit non-binary or transgender representation Mm -hmm. in the book. And outside of, it seems like maybe one or two couples that are kind of referenced in the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, really there's not any explicitly non-cis-heteronormative characters at all. And so, yeah, you know, this episode's more on gender than it is on sexuality, but I think that a lot of these things overlap. But, you know, we don't see any of these, these, uh, I think, more important representations. And and what does that mean when there's a boy and girl who are taken from every district every Mm -hmm. year for a child who's non-binary? Oh, I don't get to get reaped. (laughs) I bet the capital would be fine with that. (laughs) Totally. Then you're very quickly going to have a entire world of my binary people which i'm okay with i'm totally (laughs) fine with that but (laughs) yeah so so that that'll be my brief one but but my more general one is that i think that there's not a huge engagement with with many of the realities of biological differences between different genders because Or, or i should say biological differences between different sexes yeah thank you because the girls uh if they were born female 
who are participating in the Hunger Games, what happens when one of them is on their period during the games? Well, one, they probably don't care. And yes. then, but that, like, puts them at a big disadvantage. Or well, not only because it, of the pain and suffering, yeah. but because you're leaving a trail of blood wherever you go. And then, oh, hey, let's have these wolf mutts around. <laughs> that's not a good situation. So, yeah, not okay. Well, and I think that's even another aspect is it's going to be on camera and oh no we can't have that yeah I can... maybe they just do like a hysterectomy real quick well that's what i wonder if, if they're able to make it so that the boys do not grow facial hair yeah. you know are do they have the technology mm. in some way to uh stop that for for the girls who are participating sorry i keep interrupting you i've noticed yeah no it's all right it's, it's your fourth missed opportunity you can just take it shush you <laughs> <laughs> submit Peter. <laughs> So yeah, so there, there's that element, you know, we don't see pregnancy really factored in either. Um, mm. And I, you know, except for in the second games when she is pregnant and they're just like, well, too late, even though she's not actually pregnant. But I think that, you know, on a wider level, that's really interesting when I think about how that might affect a society. Because the existence, particularly in the original trilogy, of non-heteronormative people Mm-hmm. is not there. We don't see how they those cultural ideas exist within Panem either. Mm-hmm. And when I think about this from a historical perspective, and I think about countries that have similarly been going through projects of modernization that are labor-intensive, pronatalism is super important to many of those countries mm-hmm. and to those, those societies throughout history. And this idea that creation of children is an important part of a woman's role in society. Ugh. Yeah, really, really problematic in, in many, many ways, um, When, especially when it's state-sponsored. And often it comes with mm-hmm. the ideas of homo- homophobia because mm-hmm. it's not just you're different, but it's that you are failing to assist in this you know state righteous required. cause exactly. of creating more people on an overpopulated planet. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, Panem doesn't seem to have that overpopulation sure, problem. It, it doesn't. But yeah. yes, in uh, <laughs> so that's why I think it's interesting to kind of look at that in, yeah. in that perspective. So I guess I wonder if it's because it's a young adult novel and she just felt like it wasn't appropriate. She didn't want yeah. to turn off male readers. I don't know. It, it would have been an, a really interesting line. You know, how she just says, like, this super compelling one sentence that you're like, wait, but I need, like, totally. 20,000 more lines on this. Yeah, it would have been really interesting, like, at the reaping, she looks over and there's another 16-year-old girl who's pregnant. Like, her just having a brief thought about that and, yeah. and what that would mean. That that would have been really fascinating. Yeah, and, and I think that it actually would have been beneficial because in the same way that these books I, I would hope would help readers and young readers in particular think more about ideas of poverty and justice and, and injustice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these are yeah. things that young boys probably should be reading about and young people who do not have periods should be reading about. Unfortunately, it's something that I certainly did not get a a a good understanding of through media or representation. You know, I got mm-hmm. very clinical sex ed courses yeah. but not any concept of what it was actually like to experience that and in any type of lived way exactly yeah, yeah. but why don't we do our brief takeaways <laughs> uh how many do you have <laughs> shush i think i'm i'm kind of thinking about on your point about not having as many 
women in in positions of power in in the books. Yeah, I'm kind of thinking that Suzanne Collins was more writing about the results of of greed and ambition more than any sort of incorrect ideas of essential core traits to genders. Mm. And yet at the same time, I think my takeaway is that I'm not trying to find a quote for this episode. And, you know, often I'll do a Google search for, you know, Hunger Games gender quote. And for the Hunger Games, almost all of the ones I saw were these headlines that are just, you know, this kind of like fierce hashtag girl boss kind of style oh, ones gross. of like, you know, such surface level uplifting, but simplistic and certainly not intersectional representation of gender. Yeah, and absolutely. like, yeah, this kind of fierce feminism that is more about a character kicking butt oftentimes <laughs> than it is about real interesting engagements with the construction of gender and systems that they you know, inter- intersex with and stuff like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it kind of reminds me, it's not the same, and yes, I am adding on. Whoops. Gasp! <laughs> uh, there was like an article when I had been looking up something, like somebody had written about why the hunger games isn't like a feminist Hmm. series it was talking about how so much agency is taken away from katniss and and that's what makes it not and i'm like but that's part of the point it's Mm -hmm. it's it's showing that this is wrong it's showing that this is negative for her in these different ways it's it's showing what lack of choices and options does and like that doesn't make it not feminist (laughs) something being feminist isn't just taking it outside the confines of our reality at all you know Um, i mean i think there could be great opportunities for that as well yeah i mean that that's a struggle that is common in historical studies too of Uh oh we entered what i'm learning in grad school yeah yeah probably one of the last uh last times this will come up since i'm almost done with grad school you'll never read another scholarly (laughs) book or article i'll be completely done with them (laughs) (laughs) but yeah this this kind of uh having to navigate between focusing so much on the systems that are oppressive to people in historical communities and yet also wanting to highlight their agency under that oppression. Mm-hmm. And, you know, oftentimes it's, I think, simplified in, in ways that are problematic to like victims versus agents. And mm-hmm. I think that it's much more complex and you have to kind of see, navigate through that. But the idea that agency only comes when you have no hindrances on it mm-hmm. is, yeah, that is, I think, not only completely unrealistic, and un- <laughs> but it's bad storytelling. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact that the story moves when Katniss makes decisions. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Like and she volunteers agency, yeah. and this is why all of this happens because she was exerting her agency in that moment. Totally. Yeah. 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 Well, it's a nice brief takeaway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, why don't you bring up what we'll be discussing next week? Yeah. So we're going to be returning to... Avatar The Last Airbender and The Legend of Korra, and we are going to be looking at it through the theme of defiance. Oh, that'll be fun. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. You can find links to our social media and our website in the episode description. You can also join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash geekbetweenthelines. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek geek out. out!